Uh, well, thank you, guys. Thank you, um, Mike, for that wonderful welcome, and from Mark as well. Uh, a couple of things um, carrying on from uh, Mike's talk. I'm not going to mention Luther at all. Um, and also about publishing books. I published a couple of uh, books oh, 15 years ago on the Psalms. And they sold really well. But I actually found out, I think, that my parents had bought up most of them. And if you go to the back of our home in Cambridge, you'll find a huge storehouse of the books that I've written that my parents have bought. Um, thank you very much for... I can arrange to send them to you by post, guys, you know. Thank you so much for letting me spend time with you this morning. Um, there's two or three things I want to say by way of housekeeping, and then I'm going to go into what I want to say. I know that you're going to laugh with me, and I know that you will actually not only laugh, you may feel some tears, you may feel some resonance in what I'm saying that touches you deep in your spirit and in your psyche. Um, I know that there are people here who are wounded. I know that there are people here who have been damaged and broken. I know that some of you are recovering from brokenness. Some of you are just going into a period of brokenness. But I know that God has settled the issue. Just as Mike was saying this morning, we have a faith that is substantiated in a Christ who died for us, who rose on the third day, seats at the right hand of God and is coming again in glory. And we have a faith that is fixed, not because of our fixing it, but because of what Christ has done. And I rest in that this morning. A couple of things in terms of housekeeping. Um, there are notes that you can have from my PowerPoint presentation. You can pick them up um, afterwards. There's also a mental health check that I would like you to have a go at at some point during the day. And I can make appointments to see you afterwards, and I will book you in next week to see those of you who are actually, oh my gosh, I didn't realize I was that bad. Um, also, I'm going to say at the end that if you want to contact Anise, um, you can get hold of my um, work um, email and my work phone number if you want to talk and have conversations afterwards. I'm really, guys, I'm really comfortable coming into different Christian groups because I classify myself as a methodical Baptocostal, uh, <laughs> charismatic Anglican, presbo brethren with slightly Luther-leaning tendencies. <laughs> My work is kind of tripartite. I work in a hospital. I'm the lead chaplain and leader chaplaincy team of about 20 people. Um, the other side of my work is that I work in the area of mental health. Um, my doctoral and postdoctoral work has been in the area of why people in professional positions burn out. Um, my work is with those who actually find that their work is crushing them, that their, their work is overwhelming to them, that they get to a point where they lose all their poise. They lose the ability to function. They become dysfunctional. They find that their families start to break down because they're breaking down. They find that they're beginning to dread going to work. I see between 100 and 200 people a month um, through the work that I do. And I am so grateful to God for what he is doing in that hospital. I work in the hospital, I teach in a medical school, I teach in the university, and occasionally I see my wife. And uh, she, she's not able to be here today, which I am thankful to God, because you've seen that ring, 89 million. Even on, even on doctor's salaries, that's not going to be permissible, I don't think. A number of uh, weeks ago, I heard the story of a a bishop listening to a curate preaching. And the curate starts his sermon by saying, a number of years ago, I woke up and found myself in the arms of another man's wife. The congregation went, oh! And he said, and yes, that, that woman was my mother. And the bishop thought this was tremendous. What a hook. What a good way of getting myself into a, into a preach on Sunday. So he goes back to the cathedral, and he stands up in the ser in the, to do his sermon. And he says... A number of years ago, ladies and gentlemen, I woke up and found myself in the arms of another man's wife. And then he pauses and he looks and goes, and for the life of me, I can't remember who she was. <laughs> that has got good psychology in it. 
because whenever you are under stress or under pressure, or if ever you experience depression, one of the first things to go is your memory. You forget to be able to remember, and you also lose cognition. You're not able to actually function in a good way. I hope I can make this work. So this is the running order of what we're going to do this this morning and this afternoon. Where are we now in terms of our mental, spiritual well-being? Uh, what brings us down in terms of our mental, spiritual well-being, and who lifts us up. And all the way through, I'm going to be talking about causes that might bring you down and cures that will bring you up. So it's going to be an amalgam of what's going wrong and how to put it right. So where the heck are we? The first thing I want to say is, I want you to remember, if you've forgotten, that you are human beings. Some people, when they've heard me on tape or seen me uh, at a distance, will come up and say, it's really nice to meet you in the flesh. I always say, I'm always in the flesh. I'm always a human being. I'm always a physicality. But one of the interesting things is that way, way back in church history, right at the beginning, in the first two centuries, people were really unsure of exactly who and what Jesus was. Now, we know that Jesus is fully human and fully God. But there were some people who actually said, no, he can't be fully human if he's fully God. And they would say things like, Jesus could walk on the sand and not leave footprints, or he would walk slightly above the surface, that he wouldn't experience the things that we experience. But he was tempted in every way as we are, ladies and gentlemen, yet without sin. And if you think about that, you and I are very much human beings. We are enfleshed. We are actually incarnate in that sense. And we need to be honest about the fact that we're human. We need to be honest about the realities of what it means to be human. And we need to be truthful about the condition of our humanity. There is no reason for you and I to abandon our humanness to become more spiritual. There's no reason for us to forget that we are human beings when we want to be spiritual people. Eugene Peterson said this, We don't become more spiritual by becoming less human. Now, you may want to come back to me, but sometimes I talk to Christians who will go, I have no idea why this is happening to me, Alan. I have no idea why I'm depressed. I have no idea why I'm stressed out. I have no idea why I can't function. And I say, tell me about the last few months of your life. And they will give me a litany of hurried upness, busyness, trauma. And I would say, I am not at all surprised that you as a human being, being put under that much pressure, are exhibiting these kinds of symptoms. Sometimes we are unrealistic about ourselves. If I go without sleep, I get cranky, all right? If I go without sleep, I can't work well. If I've got a cold, it affects me. If I'm feeling under the weather, it impacts me. You and I are psychosomatic unities. That means what's happening in my body is affecting my mind and soul, and what's happening in my mind and soul is affecting my body. The Hebrews had no concept of you and I being division, divided into either bipart or tripart, body, soul, and mind. You were a unity in the presence of God. Everything about you that makes you you is what you present to God. That's the physicality. That's the spirituality. So don't forget that you and I are human. Don't be surprised that sometimes our body affects our minds and our minds affects our bodies. A man or woman fully alive is the glory of God. Remember that we are fragile, made of dust. I remember the story of a a little boy saying to his mum, Mum, you said that in the Bible it says we come from dust and we go back to dust. And she said, yes. He said, well, I've just looked under my bed and there's someone either coming or going under there. And and basically, we are made of dust. We are put together in terms of elements by God. In the end, we will go back to dust. Dust to dust. Ashes to ashes. In the sure and certain hope of the resurrection in Jesus Christ our Lord. 
If you and I are human, which, unless there's E.T. here, I guarantee that most of us here are human, we are prone to the same pressures as every other human being on the planet. We're prone to the same pressure principles. Well, let's talk about mental health. I'm going to get you to fill in that uh, well-being sheet in a few moments, but I just want to start globally, and then I'm going to come into being very, very personal, and I hope I can apply it to you and help you. The first thing you need to ask is, what in our society is bringing pressure to bear on us as human beings? So what are we like? The first thing that I will say is that we are a hurry-sick generation. A psychologist came up with this a number of years ago. We are people who live a a rapid life. And let me tell you that one of the things I'm discovering in my research is that the faster you go as a human being, the more likely you are to be anxious. So the faster you accelerate your life, the more rapidity in your life, the more pressure of pace in your life, the more acceleration in your life, the more you're going to be anxious. Because you are working at a pace and a speed that you were never intended to work at. And we have been accelerated as a human being, as a group of human beings over a number of years. A number of years ago, in the 90s, a a psychologist named Robert Robert Levine coined a word called the honker second. You may or may not have heard of it. It's the differential between you sitting at the traffic lights, the traffic lights turning green, and the guy behind you honking on his horn because you haven't moved quick enough. Now, I have had this, and I have to say this quite delicately. I'm in a group of very spiritual, mature people. I was working the first week at James Paget Hospital. I was driving into work. I stopped at the Vascule Bridge. The lights turned green, and before I could move off, the guy behind me, Mop! I'm afraid, ladies and gentlemen, my hand started to gesticulate. And then I thought, actually, no, I can't gesticulate. I've got my collar on, so I blessed him. <laughs> The scoop here is that if you are hurried to the point where you don't feel safe and confident in what you're doing, you will feel anxious. This applies at work, this applies in the home, it applies in ministry. If you and I are going at such a rapid rate that we are unable to feel that safety, that wraparound love of God then we are going to be in in a point of anxiety. Your anxiety will spike. We're time poor. We are skin poor. Let me just divert slightly. Have you noticed that? We are skin poor. One of the things I've been taught, um, I train people as teachers, and I work in education as well as in medicine, we're not allowed to touch people anymore. You get a little kitty in the classroom, falls over, scuffs their knee. You can't touch them. They're crying. You can't hug them. I was in a school not that long ago in the tiniest of tiny tots. Have you noticed how, this, how the chairs have shrunk since you went there? <laughs> I, they, I, I'm, I'm like this. I'm trying, I can't get my butt into the chair. So this little girl, she comes and gets hold of my hand. She says, Dr. Palmer, can you come? I want to show you our aquarium. So she comes over and she says, and I bop down like you should do if you're a good teacher. Bop down. And before I knew it, she was sitting in my lap. Going, mm, mm, mm. I nearly threw her off. I meet people in the hospital, and what they need is they need the touch of another human being. They need a hand being held. They need an embrace. They need, they need a bodily contact that's commissioned by the compassion of Christ to touch them. Because I believe that is part of our incarnational ministry. You're crying, you're upset, you're bewildered, you're lost. I put my arms around you and say, you know what? It's okay. I'm here for you. And I do think that something of the Spirit actually transfers itself from me to them. I think we are porous vessels. I believe that things come from us to other people. Amazing things are happening in that realm in the hospital. I'm not going to go into that. I'll get get distracted. 
You can't think on the run. The more you accelerate your thoughts, the more inconcise your thoughts will become. You can't listen on the run. When my kids were small, and I was very impatient with them, they'd start to tell me a story. Hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. And I'd go, speak faster. Say, Dad, you speak, you listen slower. You listen slower. Don't, no, come on, speed up, speed up. No, no, Dad, listen slower. My wife, bless her heart, I'm glad she's not here because I can say this. My wife, bless her, when we communicate, sometimes I come in and I'm fatigued. She's talking. I see her mouth moving and I'm watching football in my mind. <laughs> and what she will do is she will say, what did I just say? <laughs> Guys, let me just give you a... a I'm 63, let me give you a, a granddaddy kind of bit of warning, don't guess. <laughs> don't guess. You'll get your butt in a sling and you'll be on the sofa. You have to slow down your mind and heart to listen to people when they speak. You can't listen with rapidity. You have to sh- slow your voice down and the tonal nature of your voice down so that you can actually speak and listen. Neither can you observe on the run. You miss things that are so important. When I was in Canada recently, I had a couple of days with my buddy. Um, he's a leader of a, a big church in, in Alberta. And as he was busy, I spent some time in his office reading some of his books. That rapidity, that rush, that tearing hurry that we have in life has somehow got into ministry. We've become hurried up people of God. The scripture says, be still and know that I am God. If you're not still, you can't know he is God. You have to be in that pause moment, that solitary stationary moment where God can speak. This is a poem by Ruth Bailey Barton, you may have heard of her, uh, a brilliant writer. Holy One, there is something I wanted to tell you. But there have been errands to run and bills to pay, arrangements to make, meetings to attend, friends to entertain, watching to do, and I forget what it is I wanted to do. And I forget what it is what I wanted to say to you. And mostly I've forgotten what I'm about or why. Identity. In my rush, I forget whose I am and who I am. Lance Witt, who used to be the executive pastor at at, uh, Saddleback, said that he lived in an unholy hurry. And he wrote this as a kind of reshaping, reframing of uh, the poem I've just read you. Holy one, there is something I wanted to tell you, but there are too many events to plan, emails to return, ministry goals to submit, talks to prepare, conflicts to resolve, church members to counsel. And I forgot what it is I wanted to say to you. And mostly I forgot what I am about or why. Slow down, slow down, slow down and know that he is God. Consciously pull back your pace. Consciously try to slow what you do down to a more manageable process. Can I talk about my bugbear? I am running a crusade in the hospital about phones. Uh, phones are addictive by nature, they are intrusive by nature, they are distracting by nature, and they are hurry-up pieces of kit. They hurry up your life, they accelerate your life, they become addictive, we can't really put them down. Some people are touching their phones 2,000 times a day. They even speak to you when they're turned off in the same room as you, because they go, come and see what you're missing. 
There could be something important here. You could find a tweet from Stephen Fry who said he had bacon for breakfast. It could be that kind of movement. Wow, don't miss it. So phones intrude. And they are an issue that we as Christians have to take on board. It's so easy, and I've done it. My wife sitting there on Twitter, me sitting here on, tw- on, on Facebook, in the same room, over an hour of us doing diddly squit on our phones. And then I say, I didn't have enough time to be with you, love. I didn't have enough time to pray. I didn't have enough time to read the scriptures. No, because I wasted a whole lot of cotton-picking time on a phone looking at people's baby pictures. Ah! Or my new, I've just posted a new photograph of me. I saw the photograph of you last week. You haven't improved. Don't keep doing it. Okay. People are rude with phones. You're a bunch of old fubbers. I had to check that before I came to make sure it's not Anglo-Saxon or a swear word. You know what fubbing is? I'm looking at my phone, paying partial attention to you. So you've just told me your wife's died. Bless your heart. Hang on a second, I need to check Facebook. Yeah, what were you saying? Did you see that? It's the distraction. We can be present with people, yet absent in terms of our emotional relationships. Facebook friends are not friends. And let me just tell you something about Facebook at the moment if you've got kids. Some children are starting to get real problems with attention deficit disorder because it's all done in in kind of small chunks. Some children are dipping into depressive disorders and anxiety disorders because they're not getting enough likes on their posts. And they're interpreting that as them not being very good. But you can be present in the same room, but you can be bypassing the person you want to have intimacy with. Let's move on. There's one more. Let me just go back. Can I go back a second? So, fubbing, perils of zombieism, Banksy's mobile lovers, fear of missing out, the tyranny of the email. I will not be on my hospital email account coming to my phone. And I recommend if you're in business that unless you're on call or there's something very specific why you need to have your emails redirected to your phone that you don't have it. The reason being, my friends, is very practical. When you're not at work, you should be resting and recovering. If you are taking emails on board, on board, you are not going to be resting recovering. It will spike your anxiety. It will make you sleep worse. Because if you read your emails about stuff you've got to do tomorrow, you're not going to rest well. So don't get into the, um, into the perils of the email. And also be really careful how you use email. Don't say anything sensitive. Any, any, anything that you need to say that's harsh. Don't do it. Go and talk to people. Don't send emails. We used to do this. If, if I got a snotty kind of a response from someone and I wanted to write a snotty letter back to them, snotty is a Hebrew word if you didn't know, um, I would actually write the letter, put it in my desk drawer overnight and then see if I still wanted to send it tomorrow. The immediacy of an email is too tempting. Sometimes you can send something when after you go, why did I do that? Also, you can't see the cadence of the voice. You can't see the texture of the voice. It can come across much harsher than you thought it should. So be careful around emails. Be aware that we can get swamped by information. Your brain literally filters out a lot of data that comes its way so that it can actually get on with real life. And what it's doing is filtering out stuff that it doesn't see as being important so you can do the important stuff. But sometimes you and I are so awash with data, with stimuli, that we're actually not able to cope with what we're doing. We do need to guard ourselves from digital, what's the word? Infobesity. Be careful. Just look at it. Pray about it. (laughs) 
you're laughing, you're laughing, your kid has just had his head, by the way, no kid or camel was hurt in this, your kid is getting his head bitten off by a camel, what do you do? Save your kid or take a photograph? Maybe that's a paradigm of the way that, uh, a way that technology is impacting us. Now let's just zoom in on ourselves just for a few minutes. All of us face life pressures. Um, we can categorize them into three areas. We face psychological pressure, we, we face biological pressure, and we face social pressure. So the psychology is about our mind, the biology is about our bodies, and the, and the social is around our social and connections. It's okay if we have these pressures of psychology, biological, and social, as long as we're able to cope with them. When things start to overflow, my mind becomes distressed, my mind is in torment, my mind isn't doing what it should be doing, or my body isn't doing what it should be doing, or my friendship group isn't doing what it should be doing, that can start to overflow. And when it starts to overflow, you can find that you're feeling overwhelmed and pressurized. There's something called stress and life events. I don't know if you know them. This was done a number of years ago. But there are certain things that we score points in terms of um, stresses in your life. And I th- that is really interesting. I've written some of them down here. Moving house, high, high stress score. Moving house. Refurbishing or redecorating, high, high stress score. Getting married, high, high stress score. Having children, high, high stress score. Getting a divorce, high stress, stress score. Changing jobs, high stress score. Not knowing if your job is secure, high stress score. Going Christmas shopping for a man, high stress score. I haven't checked the validity of this piece of empirical research, but I did read a number of years ago that for a man to go Christmas shopping, he experienced the same stress load as a fighter pilot in combat. (laughs) Absolutely. I actually, I'm starting to perspire at the mention of Christmas and shopping. (laughs) Really interestingly enough, Our lives are built around pillars in terms of psychology and psychological well-being. When relationships are okay, when family's okay, when finance is okay, uh, when physicality's okay, we're fine. But once those pillars start to tip over, we can only survive uh, kind of hobbling along. So if you're finding in your life that several of the pillars that support you are actually wobbling or falling over, you are going to find that you may well be wobbling psychologically as well. Let's look at some of the things that actually um, can wobble. Relationships. I actually teach this in the hospital, but I think it's actually worth saying here. This is my considered opinion, my brothers and sisters. We put too much expectation of what we think we can have our needs met on our partners. We actually expect them to do for us what only God can do. We put claustrophobic pressure on them. We wrap them around and we smother them and say, meet my needs, meet my needs, meet my needs, meet my needs. And sometimes we put too high a pressure on our partners. We ask them to do for us which only God the Holy Spirit can do. Now, I said to my wife the other day, honey, would you like a better husband? She said, I'd like that. I said, well, then lower lower your expectations. Basically, we need to drop our expectations in the sense that actually our partners will meet our needs. So too much pressure on them to deliver our needs can cause breakups. We need to lower our expectations. And then I'm going to say more about this later. Can you see it? (laughs) Pressures of kids. We'll come back to that in more detail. I'm afraid you've got children. Um, Older parents. Some of us are in the sandwich generation. I've just got rid of my kids. I don't mean my kids have just moved out. Bless them. Um, And we have done a strategic thing. We've downsized so we haven't got enough bedrooms for them to come back. And actually, we live opposite hotels, so if they come back, they can stay with their kids in the hotel. 
fan-dabby-dozy. But now we have older parents. And you know the uh, implication on that. Some people worry a lot about their health. Interestingly enough, we sometimes use it pejoratively. Hypochondria is simply an elevated anxiety. Anxiety will fix or fixate on something. And sometimes our anxieties fixate on our bodies and things that we might have wrong with us. And you can actually get into a state where you start to have the symptoms of the thing that you've got simply generated by a kind of psychosomatic energy. So we do worry about our health. We worry about finances. Uh, We live in Lowestoft and Yarmouth and Galston in one of the poorest areas of the country. We've got poverty, we've got dysfunctional families, we've got needs. I don't know about you, but one of the highest pressures I've felt in my life was when we had too much month at the end of the money, when we couldn't pay the bills. We didn't know where it was coming from. I've laid awake at night sweating, cold sweat, thinking, Lord, please, please, It's a real pressure, and some people live under that pressure constantly. Work, we're going to talk more about that soon, but work brings its own pressures. Anytime you work in a people-focused, people-intensive environment, you're going to be drained. People are like vines. They latch onto you and suck the energy out of you. If you work with people all day in your work you will be drained. Let me ratchet it up a bit more. If you work with people in extremists, people in trouble, people with problems all day, you're going to be even more drained. So don't be amazed at the end of the day when you finish your work, whether a pastor or whatever you do, if you've been with people in extremists, you're going to feel drained by just being with them. Remember what Jesus said or what Jesus recognized when that lady touched the hem of his garment. He felt what? He felt virtue or something go from him, didn't he? So when I lay my hand on this guy and I minister him, in in a sense, metaphorically, something of me is going into him. And I will feel drained. I will feel empty. I will feel wrung out. People put pressure on you. You absorb what's going on around you emotionally. Emotions are actually quite catching. If I sit with someone who's upset, frightened, angry, tearful, if I'm with them for a little while, I start to kind of absorb by a kind of psychological osmosis some of what they feel. And sometimes, and I'm sure you've felt this yourself, that you've sat with someone, you haven't done that much with them, but you've walked away feeling really, really flattened out really, really dissipated, really, really drained. And it's simply because you and I absorb. And that is a God-given thing. We are meant to be able to read other people's emotions. All the time, you and I are scanning each other to see how the other person feels because we are natural, a, naturally a gregarious group of people. We naturally want to be with people. We find our safety and security with people. But people are really draining. Don't ever be surprised if you feel the impact of stress because you worked in a stressed environment or community. Some of you guys work in business. Some of you work uh, in organizations. If your organization is under stress, you will feel stressed. If your organization is finding it difficult, you will find it difficult. So don't be surprised when that happens. So stress is normal. Stress is a part of being human. Uh, stress is built around self-protection. Your brain wants to protect you long enough so that you can meet someone, fall in love, have babies and pass on your DNA. So it's always looking out for ways that it might be in danger. And when you are threatened, whether physically or verbally or in any way, you will have an a intuitive Response: You will either try and fight it, you will either try and run away from it, or you will freeze so that people can't see you and hope, you hope that they ignore you. So those kind of things happen all the time. And there's a mass- massive surge of adrenaline and oxytocin and cortisol and all those other chemicals. And when you have those kind of episodes, when you have a threat episode, you will feel drained afterwards because of the release 
of all the hormones into your system that will either enable you to fight it, run away from it, or freeze on it. That means that if you're in a church-based situation and you have a row with somebody or you have someone aggressive to you, you will have those same kind of symptoms. Your tummy will be upset, your breathing will change, your mouth will go dry, and you will feel all these things. Remember, you and I are human. You have certain default positions when you're in a stressed situation that your body will do to protect you. It keeps us alive. It stops us being eaten by saber-toothed tigers in years gone by. Uh, the brain is always looking out for possible dangers. But the trouble is, our brain hasn't adapted to modern life too well. I'm not often chased by a saber-toothed tiger down Galston High Street. I haven't been attacked by a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Um, I'm not often threatened by a mammoth. Uh, I'm not usually in danger physically. But my mind is still on hyper-arousal, looking out for ways that I might be threatened. And left to itself, the mind will assume the worst-case scenario. It will say, this could be dangerous for you. We need to look after ourselves. And interestingly enough, and I find this really challenging, your brain can't tell the difference between a verbal aggression and a physical aggression. It will react the same way. So if I come and whack you in the beak, all right, that will be physical aggression, you'll respond to that. If I come and shout at you or demean you or make you feel embarrassed, same thing. And your brain is going to go into the same kind of mechanism. The trouble is it does get switched on. There are some of you here who are suffering from what I would call uh, GAD, Generalized Anxiety Disorder. I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a prescribing doctor. I do the old-fashioned ways when I talk to people. Someone comes to me and they're stressed or they're depressed or they've got high levels of anxiety, and I'll ask them what's happened in their life. And there's usually been a trigger point. Something has happened that has spiked their anxiety. Now, what's meant to happen there, ladies and gentlemen, is that it's meant to spike your anxiety to keep, get you into a safe place and then turn itself back off, right? Do you get that? The trouble is it doesn't always turn itself back off. And so you have people who are constantly anxious, constantly on the lookout, constantly worried. So stress actually can be good. It can motivate it can get me to hand in that paper, get me to prepare that talk for the gathering, make sure that I've paid the bill so my wife doesn't give me a slapping at the end of the month. It can motivate me to do all those kind of things, right? That's good. It's when stress moves into distress and immobilizes us that we can find that we're paralyzed by it. And you do see some people freeze frame when they're anxious, don't you? They literally are like rabbits caught in the headlights. These are the common uh, symptoms of stress. The first one I notice is irritability. I'm going to talk a lot about anger this afternoon because I don't think as Christians we deal with anger very well. So I'm going to talk about that. One of the first presenting uh, symptoms I see is people's toleration level, tolerance levels go down. Lack of appetite, poor sleep. How do you sleep, guys? Who's a good sleeper here? Um, is there anyone? No one asleep yet, are they? No. Who's a good sleeper? Put your hands up. Okay, so being a good sleeper means how many hours? Eight. Eight hours. Pretty good, pretty good. Eight, Eight hours? Seven or eight. Seven or eight. Good, good, good. Seven. Seven. Any more? Okay, we've got the goodies, the goody two-shoes. Let's go for the uh, who doesn't sleep too good. Well, that's really interesting because we've got some who are not doing either. <laughs> So you unplug yourself like a hybrid at night, do you, and get into bed? Okay. Let me give you a kind of uh, a, a kind of way of thinking. If you sleep poorly, your mental health will be poor. If you've got poor mental health, you will sleep poorly. Let me give you some advice about sleep. Can you give me a kick when I'm getting near the end of my time, please? Here. How many of you go and look at your phones? the last thing before you go to sleep. Okay? Think blue, te blue, blue light technology. Blue light technology does something on your brain. It leaves it on standby. 
which means you don't go into deep wave therapeutic sleep. You can lose two hours of therapeutic sleep by looking at your phone just before you go to sleep. So if you've got a way of filtering out blue light technology or some other ways of doing it, do that. Or don't go on your phone just before you go to sleep. Sleep is a real way, actually, of making you feel better in terms of your um, mental health. You can see some of the other things there. Forgetfulness, lack of ability to think straight. That's another um, characteristic of stress. Racing heart. I'm going to ask some of you to identify some of these if you've had them in a minute. If you say all of them, I'm going to call a paramedic. (laughs) Okay, so racing heart. Increased breathing, we hyperventilate. And in hyperventilation, what we do is it's not about the oxygen, it's about the uh, the carbon dioxide. We don't process enough carbon dioxide. The, The carbon dioxide helps us to process oxygen in our blood. Increased breathing, sweating, numbness, butterflies in the tummies, tingling, uh, disassociation. I'm not really here. That's what disassociation is. Sometimes people with anxiety have an out-of-the-body experience. They literally stand beside themselves. It's called ecstasis. They stand outside themselves and they're slightly removed from themselves. And they're they're hyper, hyper, hyper sensitized to their own bodies. They kind of fixate on their own bodies. Poor sleep. These are all interesting things. Feeling out of control. There's one thing that humans cannot deal with. Feeling out of control. The immediate, we, the immediate thing that we feel when we feel out of control is we panic. Anyone ever seen someone have a panic attack? Anyone had a panic attack? Anyone had a panic attack? They all have panic attacks. Yeah. They're usually public. God bless them. Um, interesting thing about panic attacks is that you get a bumping heart, you get sweats, uh, you, feel across, you feel the room closing in on you, you feel like you might poop yourself, you feel like you might pee yourself, which is all very nice if you're in public. Uh, you feel that you could actually die, you get kind of death fears. The trouble is with your brain and panic attacks, it will associate where you have that panic attack and if you go back into that same environment again, the panic attack will start happening again. So if you had it in a restaurant or on a bus or on a plane or in your kitchen, when you walk back into that geographic location, your brain will go, hang on a sec, we've been here before, come on guys, we need to start panicking, this is not good. And there's lots of ways to treat that and I'll talk to you a little bit about that later. Now, getting towards the end of what I'm going to say in this first session. What a glorious morning this morning, wasn't it? I woke up in Bury St. Edmunds in my, in my hotel. I went out. My car looked like a solid piece of ice. It was frozen. So I got it unfrozen. Uh, anyone seen frozen yet? Okay, good. I got it unfrozen and started to drive along the freeway. And it started to go ping, 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 ping. Low tire pressure. No front camera, no back camera, uh, no warnings. When the oil light comes on in my car, my car just got warnings about everything. It can even tell me to slow down. I don't need that. My wife can do that quite well, thanks. She can tell me to turn left, to slow down, and to please break. Does your wife do that? My wife actually, sitting next to me, starts to do this. And she over, and she over, when she gets to that point, she overdoes the kind of forward movement. She go, mmm! <laughs> Seriously, bless her heart. You don't ignore, you don't ignore your psychosomatic dashboard. Don't ignore it. Remember you're human. For instance, depression is an early warning system. Don't ignore it. Don't become a mighty soldier for the Lord. I don't do depression. Or, oh my gosh, I've got depression. I'm a Christian. I must be crap. I must be awful. Oh God, have mercy. Don't tell anyone. I started talking to someone about, I have bipolar. I started talking to one of my Christian brothers, an elder, about bipolar and hadn't seen a psychiatrist, he completely ignored what I just said like I was talking about the weather and what was going on. He completely kind of gone, don't even go there. Don't even go there. It's your body 
psychology warning you that you need to pay attention. If you've got to pay attention to God, and I say this reverently, for God's sake, pay attention to yourself. If you don't take care of yourself, in the end you won't be able to take care of anybody. Okay, this is not new age, let's go out and hug a tree. This is sound psychology, sound spirituality. If I am not taking good care for myself, I won't be able to take care of my wife, my kids, my church. I won't be able to attend. You'll run out of gas. If you're not investing, guys, in yourselves, in the end, you're going to come up empty. My little boy, Samuel, who's now 28, we're in Canada. We go to the ATM, the hole in the wall. What do you call it? Bank? What's it called? ATM. He loved to do this. I wouldn't do this now, but I used to give him my credit card and my PIN number. Wouldn't do that now. And he'd go, $100. Daddy, this is fantastic. This, this, this machine gives you free money. Can we come again later on today? Honey, 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 listen, listen. What mum and dad have to do is we have to put it in before we can take it out. If we don't put it in before we take it out, we get a insufficient funds. And I'm looking at your ATMs this morning. And I think some of you guys are going to come back insufficient funds. Because I think that you've been neglecting yourself. And that is not a service to God. God doesn't want you to neglect yourself. He loves your humanity. He loves your body. Don't be dysmorphic. Don't get upset about your body. God loves your body. You know, who's read Augustine? Of course, everyone. Um, Augustine, he, uh, he's a really interesting guy. Augustine, uh, he was a guy, he was a player, man. He was a boy about town. And then he got saved because of his mother, Monica, praying for him. But he was a Manichaean, and he was a Neoplatonist. Neoplatonists believe that the body is inherently evil and wicked. Now, link that to his views of sexuality. If you start having sex, says Augustine, and you enjoy it, it's a sin. Whoa, what a turn on. Seriously, come on, guys. God has given us our bodies. God has given us our bodies to celebrate. They're not evil. Flesh doesn't mean this stuff. It means that part of me that's in rebellion against God, right? So, me being in the flesh doesn't mean me being in sin. It simply means I'm a human being. Rant over, let's move on. So, don't ignore it. Don't ignore these signs that come up. Don't ignore these kind of indicators that something's going wrong. This guy over here, someone who's done a lot of work on Freud, I'm quite worried about him. He doesn't really staring up his own butt. And what he's doing, he's missing the point. And this is what we do so often, don't we? Something happens, particularly men, we have to be dragged by the gonads to a GP, don't we? Right? We do. Oh, no, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go next week. Yeah, I know I'm, I'm, I know I'm bleeding. Uh, yeah, I, I know, I know, I, I know that. I have to get out 15 times in the night to go and pee. I know that, I know that. I've got this awful pain in my... And actually, yeah, I'm spitting up... Yeah, no, but I'm sure it's fine. I just, I'll have a glass of water. I'll be fine, don't you worry. Don't ignore it. Go and see what's going on. Attend to it. Pay attention to it. God is speaking to you through your body, through your mind. Do something about it. Talk to your GP. Talk to someone who you can trust about it. Remember, and remember this, this is really important. I'm going to finish here because I think I'm going to run out of time. For me, identity is the, is the absolutely critical thing about me being a Christian. Let me just explain a little bit psychologically to you, and then I'll come back to what uh, Jesus said. Notice in the temptations, what did the devil go after? What did he say? If you are the Son of God. Do you think Jesus had any doubts that he was the Son of God? No, but the devil wanted to put a little leverage in Jesus' mind so that Jesus might start to doubt who he is, whose he is, and what he should do. And if you and I forget our identity in Christ, the ripple-out effects are going to be enormous. 
and Satan will continuously attack your identity in Jesus. It's really, really interesting in terms of psychology. We gain most of our understanding of ourselves by the opinions of other people. What other people think. And we absorb what other people do and then the way they respond to us and what they say about us and the narratives that they give us. How much of that is true? You may have been given a a narrative by your parents. You were never no good. You were rubbish. Didn't really love you, didn't want you. Is that your narrative? You're a failure. You're a mess up. Is that a real good narrative? No, of course not. We cannot forget whose we are. We cannot forget what we are called to do. We need our sense of identity. Interestingly, if you want to read a really good book on Stoicism, uh, Darren Brown, the magician, uh, has written a book on happy. And he talks about this idea of narratives. You and I have been told a lot about who we are. Where is the best place to go to find out truly who I am? It's not my mum and dad. It's not my sisters and brothers. It's not my professional colleagues. It's not the university. It's not the doctor. It's actually Jesus Christ that I am settled in him. So my true identity is I'm made in the Imago Dei made in the image of God. I'm loved as a precious child of God. I am absolutely forgiven for all my past wrongs. And what Mike was saying this morning is, I think we nod uh, agreement to it, I don't think our hearts are nodding all the time. Are you absolutely convinced in your mind that everything that you and I have ever done wrong was dealt with with the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, goes on cleansing. It's the Christian's bar of soap. It's a present continuous. Not only did it cleanse, it is cleansing and will cleanse. I will not turn up to heaven and God can get a list out and go, on November the 24th, it's all done. As far as the east is from the west, I'll remember your sins no more. So we have a new identity in Jesus Christ. And this is really important, guys. You are not of instrumental value to God. Instrumental value means God values you for what you do. All right? So the more ministry I do, the better I am. The more money I give, God's going to favor me more. No. You are valued intrinsically by God, which means he doesn't value you by what you do. He values you because of who you are in Jesus Christ. So you don't have to wrestle for that. You can rest in it. I am who I am in Jesus Christ. I'm going to end here because... um, Let me just just do this. Am I okay, Mark, for time? Oh, this is good. Let me just tell you something about my own story. Um, in 2001, I was the pastor of a large church in Calgary. Uh, we had about a thousand people, which is quite large. Um, I was a senior pastor. Um, I went there in 1999. Um, I was doing the job. But the externals were okay, but the internals were totally messed up. So I was, even, I was able to preach, I was being fairly effective, but I was dying inside. I was finding that I was flatlining emotionally. In fact, I was emotionally dead. I, I was very angry with my children. I was very angry and spiteful with my wife. Um, I, I was angry most of the time. And when I wasn't angry, I was depressed. I was drinking too much. Um, I was abusing myself in the sense that I was actually punishing myself for what I thought was going wrong in my life. And one Thursday evening, I took a, it was a snowy Canadian evening, I walked out of my, um, my home and I walked up to the GP and I said, I'm shot. And I was sectioned. I was taken into hospital and I was kept there and I was medicated. I honestly felt 
that that was the end of ministry. I honestly felt that it was the worst time in my whole life. I honestly felt that I'd never stand up in front of other people again and talk to them about the love of Christ. I didn't know if I could ever go back into a church building because every time I went back into a church building I felt like I was going to be sick because I so associated it with something that had gone badly wrong with my life. My wife left me at that time. My wife left me and she just moved away. She couldn't handle it anymore. That was 18 or 19 years ago. Ever since then, guys, since my uh, run-in with burnouts, I've been thinking, praying, recovering, and working with people who've gone through the same thing. So I'm speaking in this country, in Canada and other countries, about pastors who have hit the wall. It's not just pastors, as anybody. Okay, just look at this and just give you some information. 80%, this is pastors, 80% believe that pastoral ministry affects their families negatively. Oh my gosh. 33% say that being in the ministry is an outright hazard to the family. 75% report that they have had a significant stress-related crisis at least once in their ministry. 50% feel they are inadequately trained to do their job. 90% feel they are inadequately trained to cope with the ministry demands. 25% of pastors' wives see their husband's work schedule as a source of conflict. Been there, done that. 80% of pastors say they have insufficient time with their spouse. 56% of pastors' wives say they have no close friends. 45% of pastors' wives say that they're the greatest danger to them and their family is, is physical, emotional, mental and spiritual burnout. 45% of pastors say that they have experienced burnout to the extent that they needed to take a leave of absence from ministry. 70% do not have somebody they can call a close friend. This is what's happening in terms of global church. You might know that uh, Mike's favourite preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, he suffered terribly with depressive illness. Um, he was sometimes bedridden. And his wife used to strap a Bible above his head so that he'd lay down on his pillow and see the scriptures above his head because he couldn't move. He used to go down to France to kind of recover uh, and recalibrate. But he suffered from depressive illness all of his life, all of his ministry. And at the height of his success, he said, he wanted to abandon ministry and go and find a place in the wilderness where he could hide away. So why do pastors get like this? First of all, pastors have unrealistic unrealistic expectations of ourselves and our churches. Probably more worrying that is that churches have unrealistic expectations of their pastors. Do you, guys, educate your churches into how ministry works? The fact that you're not going to be available all the time. My friend Dan's got a church of 3,000 people and he gets regular complaints through his secretary. Why didn't you come and visit Mrs. So-and-so? And he says, he emails back to Mrs. So-and-so, Lady, if I turn up in a suit in the hospital, you're in real trouble. Because you're on the end, bud. You're going out. Unrealistic expectations. I think it's really important that we work on that. What causes stress in your ministry? Okay. Just tell me. What causes, what's stress in your ministry? If you don't volunteer, I'm going to come and ask you. What causes stress in your, yes sir? Uh, expectations of Expectations about unrealistic expectations. Uh, even imagine, but in my own head, whether they're really going on or not. Just that okay, so that puts pressure on you. Unre- yeah, what else? Too much to do, absolutely. Yes, oh, that was just a hand around the shoulder. <laughs> Anybody else? Less time. Not enough time? Not enough time? Conflict. Absolutely, conflicts we're going to do, uh, we're going to look at conflicts soon as well. Anything else? People. Absolutely, people. Church, strangely enough, is filled with people. 
another stressor in a pastor's life can be that they get this holy person syndrome. Um, I must be more than human. Let me give you a hint. You're never going to be more than human. You're going to be human till the day you die. Another one is I can break the rules in terms of workload, physical health, relationships and well-being. The same rules apply to you as pastors and to me as a pastor. The inability, oh, this, is my, this is my absolutely bête noir. I can't say no. And if I do say no, I get cringily guilty. So what happens when you don't say no? You over, you over occupy your calendar. And I tell you the way I do it, I look at my calendar six months ahead and I think, you know what, I could fit that in. So this week I've done about 14 things in different parts of the country and it all looks so doable six months ago, but I left myself no wiggle room, no recovery room, no rest room. No rest room? (laughs) How Freudian is that? The constant need, the demand, you're only as good as your last sermon. Uh, the preparation of preaching and teaching and Bible studies, the preparation for weddings, funeral and baptisms and training, all these kind of things. The loneliness. Being a pastor can be very, very lonely. Being a leader can be very, very lonely. Lack of supervision. We need someone to actually speak into our life and often we don't have people speak into our lives. The stupid things that I've read in books have put pressure on me. It is better to burn out than to rust out. Forgive my French. That is the biggest load of crapola I've heard in a long time. It is not better to burn out than to rust out. It's not good to rust out. It's certainly not good to burn out. What good are you to your family, your friends, your church if you're burnt out? You're no good at all. You're a burnt out shell. We might as well just move you away and off you go. So being burnt out is not a prerequisite for ministry. Criticism. Oh my gosh. This has been the thing that's really got me down. I have been. This is, this is, these are the things I've been criticized over. This is going to make you, this is going to laugh. The length of my hair. I'm now moving into the kind of marble top. And and remember, God only puts marble on the best furniture. So I'm moving into that. So I've been criticized for the length of my hair. I've been criticized for my sermons being too intellectual or not deep enough. What is deep enough? Deep enough is incomprehensible enough. Wearing a clerical collar, not wearing a clerical collar. Using too much humor or being too serious, driving a new car, having a new home, driving an old car, living in social housing. Like Jeff Lucas says, I sometimes wish the Bible would include this verse, thus says the Lord, lighten up a bit. Lighten up a bit. We have had major church confrontations over the kind of cookies that we had in coffee and cookies after the church. We have had major confrontations over the colour that we painted the guttering. No, seriously, I was in a meeting and this lady got up and said, the Lord has spoken to me. (laughs) Okay, okay, I'm listening, I'm listening. And he's told me, yeah, come on, come on, come on, that we must paint the guttering. Then I'm starting to go, okay, blue. And the Lord has said, if you don't, I'm leaving the church. (laughs) And actually, what I thought in my mind was, the Lord says, good. (laughs) The Lord says, good. You can have people who are clinging vines. Clinging vines are those people who literally wrap themselves around you and suck the energy out of you. There are some people we wish would stay in our church and they leave. And there are some people we wish would leave in our church and they stay. And they take up inordinate amounts of time. They are sinkhole people. They will drain you. They will literally empty you of all the goodness and virtue that you have. They will sap your energy. Some people, my brothers and sisters, bring joy when they arrive, and some people only bring joy when they leave. (laughs) Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
And as I finish this part this morning, you've heard of mood hoovers, haven't you? Spelt wrong. Mood hoovers. A mood hoover is someone who will rain on your parade, who will take your enthusiasm and we on it. Who will, who will, we will, who will flush all the energy and vitality that you had. They're a mood hoover. If you don't know a mood hoover, you are the mood hoover. <laughs> now, I want you to do something right now before we finish. I want you to close your eyes. Okay? And I want you to picture in your mind, Mr. or Mrs. Mood Hoover. You've got one, haven't you? Have you got one? There is one in every team, several in many churches, and we need to develop a Holy Ghost spray that we spray over them and turn them into dr- from being drains into being radiators. I want to turn those guys from being drains on ministry to being radiators of Christ's love.